This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 161 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Dana Falsetti, a yoga teacher, fellow podcast host, and Instagram star, whom you may know from her handle, Nola Trees, whose work is dedicated to body liberation. We talked about why setting boundaries is so important for healing from diet culture, the importance of self-compassion, why doing no harm doesn't mean cutting out food groups, how diet culture shows up in the yoga world, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Judith, who writes, This may seem like an odd one, because unlike probably most of your listeners, I have been eating intuitively since childhood and have never really restricted. I'm a tall size X and have never been told to lose weight by any medical professional. Recently, though, I was diagnosed with high cholesterol and have been told by my doctor to reduce my intake of cholesterol-heavy foods. This is a big shock to me as I am just now in my late 40s having to tell myself no to many foods that I want to eat at the time. I'm a real foodie and love to cook and bake, to go to restaurants with friends, etc. It's a big part of my enjoyment in life. I'm finding this new regime very frustrating and oppressive, but I know my heart health is so vitally important. Do you have any advice? So thanks, Judith, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, that's awesome that you've eaten intuitively for your whole life. That's such a rare gift, you know? It's really what everyone deserves because we're all born as intuitive eaters. We all have that innate wisdom about food no matter what size body we're in, and we all deserve that no matter what size body we're in as we go through life. And so what a gift that you were able to retain that innate connection to your body that you were born with. And again, that's something that we all deserve and that we all have the capacity to get back to. So first of all, I want to clarify that cholesterol in food doesn't actually equate to cholesterol in the body. That was a myth back in the 1980s or so that was disproved by later advances in science. So I don't know if your doctor was saying avoid foods that have cholesterol in them, but that's actually wrong. Foods that have cholesterol in them are not a problem for your body's cholesterol. And a quick trigger warning here because I'm going to talk about what some of the conventional wisdom now says about the causes of high cholesterol. So if you might find that triggering, you can go ahead and skip ahead 15 seconds or so. So these days, the conventional wisdom says that it's not cholesterol in food, but actually saturated fat in food that gets converted into cholesterol in the body, and that therefore cutting saturated fat is supposedly going to be a way to lower your heart risks. But even that is actually being called into question by recent evidence. So a couple of high-profile studies in the past few years have found that evidence doesn't actually show any real health benefit from lowering saturated fat consumption in terms of your heart disease risk. So there's been a lot of controversy over those findings, but they've 
you've really highlighted something that I think is universally true about nutrition studies, which is that it's very difficult and in many cases impossible to say with any real certainty that a particular food or food component or style of eating causes any long-term health outcome. You know, there's evidence that particular foods and eating patterns might be associated with certain long-term health outcomes, but we can't really infer causation. As, you know, I'm always saying correlation does not equal causation because human beings are so complex. And when it comes to nutrition and health, there's so much else that goes into our health. And there's also so much else that goes into even our eating patterns and our patterns of taking care of ourselves than just how much of X nutrient we eat. So it's a lot more complicated and nutrition studies, unfortunately, don't control for a lot of confounding variables like the stigma that people face for, say, being larger bodied, right? Weight stigma. They don't control for things like disordered eating, actually. Surprisingly, I've almost never seen a nutrition research study that controls for disordered eating in the population they're measuring. So if they're looking at like effects of X nutrient on heart disease risk, they're not controlling for whether the people that they're following have disordered eating behaviors that, of course, would also put their heart at risk. So there's a lot of confounding factors in nutrition research, and it's super hard to say with any certainty whether one thing causes another. So what we do know, though, from better research, research that does control for a lot of the complex factors that human beings face, is that everyone's cholesterol levels tend to rise with age. That's pretty undisputed. And that high cholesterol seems to be a risk factor for heart disease, although it's just one among many risk factors, and it's not by itself going to automatically cause heart disease. And it sounds like you who asked the question don't really have any other risk factors for heart disease, except for now maybe stress, because stress is definitely a known risk factor for heart disease, and stressing out about your eating is definitely a source of stress. So that is something to consider. You really have to think about your true holistic health, and that means mental and emotional health as well as physical health, as I talked about in the episode with Alan Levinovitz that we re-aired last week, because your true holistic health, your mental, physical, and emotional health is really what goes into your health outcomes and what often gets overlooked in simplified research that just says, cut out X to reduce your heart disease risk. And it sounds like for you, enjoyment of food and being able to eat what you want is a huge part of your mental and emotional health, whereas having to restrict yourself is really taking away from that and taking a toll. So I'd recommend trying to have an open conversation about this with your doctor. Talk about what you're experiencing on the mental and emotional level. Talk about your overall health, your holistic health from that standpoint. And talk about whether taking a medication to lower your cholesterol would actually be a better fit for you for your overall health than trying to change how you eat. Because if trying to change how you eat is going to cause you a lot of mental and emotional distress, that's A, actually going to negatively affect your physical health because stress and mental anguish does have an effect on physical health. And B, your overall health, including your mental and emotional health, is going to suffer. So medication is a totally viable option for any disease you might encounter, any health condition where someone might say, you could take this medication or you could do this dietary thing. You just should know, as Alan and I talked about in that episode, that dietary things that you might try for managing a particular physical health condition have major side effects, one of which is obsession and disorder around food. And so if you experience that side effect, you know, it sounds like you had a really intuitive relationship with food and then started to try that dietary 
process, you know, that dietary fix, quote unquote, for your cholesterol and found that it's negatively affecting your mental and emotional health, which is very common. We're all really at risk for that in our society, which I'll speak about more in a minute. So you found that that's a problem for you. So why not try the medication, which is also going to have its own potential side effects. But if the side effects to your mental and emotional health are greater than the potential side effects you might experience from a medication, why not go that route? You know, and our culture in this day and age, diet culture and its new guise as the wellness diet really demonizes taking medication and prioritizes quote unquote, fixing things through food, which A, doesn't always have, I mean, in most cases, doesn't have a good evidence base because of the problems with nutrition research that I spoke about. And B, doesn't include, doesn't factor in the potential negative risks to your mental and emotional health. And so I'm no advocate for the pharmaceutical industry or anything like that, but I definitely think that in a lot of cases, if the dietary road that you could take is leading to disorder or has the potential to lead to disorder, the medication route is a safer and more effective option in a lot of cases. And there's really no shame in taking a medication that will help your physical health while also preserving your mental health. And there's also no shame in taking a medication for your mental health. Taking medications to help your mental health is a totally viable option. And again, a lot of people in this day and age want to talk about like dietary hacks you can do to reduce depression or reduce anxiety or whatever. And like in a lot of cases, it's garbage. It doesn't actually, it's not actually backed up by scientific evidence. And even if it is, even if it has some low grade scientific evidence suggesting that maybe some food changes could be helpful, which again, doesn't happen that often. But if it does, it still doesn't factor in the effects on your overall health, on your mental health, your emotional health, and your physical health. So the reality is that all people in our culture in this day and age, and particularly those who identify as women or who were socialized as women, are at huge risk of disordered eating and a problematic relationship with food because of everything we've been told, you know, everything we've heard in diet culture our whole lives. So when any of us gets a prescription to change how we eat, it definitely carries its own major risk. And for you, it sounds like that actually has resulted in a negative change in your mental health. So I would say talk to your doctor, you know, see if they're on board and willing to talk about medication instead of this dietary change stuff or maybe potential other options that you could do that don't involve changing your eating in a way that harms you. And if your doctor isn't receptive to that, if they're not open to that kind of dialogue, I would get a second opinion. You know, go to a doctor who gets disordered eating and understands the holistic health in the sense that I talked about with Alan Levinovitz, which means mental, physical, and emotional health, not an alternative health practitioner who holds themselves out as practicing holistic medicine, but in fact is just going to tell you to go on an elimination diet or something. That's not what I mean. You know, I mean finding a, a Western medicine, you know, medical doctor who is open to talking about other options, including medication that could help you manage your cholesterol and also to like give you some real talk about your heart disease risk. Because even if your cholesterol is a little bit high, if you don't have other risk factors that impact your heart, some doctors are often willing to take a wait and see approach and see if anything progresses, see if the cholesterol gets worse or if it's maybe just part of the aging process, which it often is for a lot of people that cholesterol just tends to creep up over time and they don't necessarily need to do anything until it gets to a certain level. So see if you can find a doctor like that or maybe if your current doctor is willing to take more of a wait and see approach or take a medication approach. 
but not prescribe this diet to you that then is going to throw your mental health into jeopardy and thereby actually increase your heart risks by increasing your stress levels. So I hope that helps give you some ideas of how to approach this. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to not have to wait so long for my answers, because I think that question was from like September 2017, so I'm really backlogged with the questions, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, to help you master intuitive eating and break free from diet culture. The course has an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast that I do with hundreds of participants' questions answered already. And when you join, you get to ask me your questions and have me answer them in the following month's Q&A. And you also get 13 modules of content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, plus access to our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants. That group is really full of amazing people. I'm just constantly floored at how supportive they are on this intuitive eating journey for one another. And I'm also in there really frequently answering questions and providing guidance. And so is my staff. So you really get a huge amount of support from me, from my staff, from the community at large in this course. So if you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. We're brought to you today by Simple Contacts. There are a million things demanding your time, so contact lenses should not be one of them. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in minutes. Here's how it works. You just take a quick self-guided vision test from your phone or computer. It'll be reviewed by a licensed doctor in 24 hours, and then you'll receive a renewed prescription and can reorder your contacts. It's that simple, and the prices are unbeatable with free standard shipping. The vision test is only $20 compared to an appointment which without insurance could cost up to $200, though this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, so you'll still have to do that, but you need to do this for getting your contacts because I got to experience how simple it really is, and it truly is so simple. I took the eye test in my kitchen wearing my pajamas, and I had a new contact prescription in minutes that was delivered to my door within days. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first Simple Contacts order. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash psych20, that's P-S-Y-C-H 20, or enter the code psych20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash psych20, P-S-Y-C-H 20, or enter the code psych20 at checkout for $20 off. We're also brought to you today by Mother Dirt. I'm always talking on this podcast about how easy it is to get sucked into diet culture's rules and out of alignment with our body's innate wisdom about eating and food, right? And this is actually true about skincare too. So in our appearance-obsessed, cleanliness-consumed culture, we can get sucked into skincare routines that take our skin away from its own state of alignment. Whether we're over-cleaning or following complex rituals to try to make our skin look quote-unquote perfect, we need to break the cycle and help our skin get back into balance. That's what Mother Dirt is all about. Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores the beneficial bacteria that your skin needs and helps balance your skin microbiome, which helps bring your skin back to that innate balanced state. And their biome-friendly cleanser, shampoo, and moisturizer nourish that beneficial bacteria and let it thrive. 
They also smell really great, which is rare to find in gentle skincare products. The shampoo is made with rose water and has a really lovely, subtle, rosy scent. And the cleanser has like a lemongrass scent, which is one of my favorite fragrances. And right now, Food Psych listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code Food Psych when they buy Mother Dirt products. Head over to motherdirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with the code Food Psych. That's F O O D P S Y C H, all one word. Plant the seeds of well being and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. I'm also so psyched to be brought to you today by Tomboy X. I love this brand because they're built entirely on the principle of inclusiveness in terms of size, gender identity, and everything else. It's time to stop wearing underwear that doesn't make you feel good about yourself. Underwear with more frills than function, underwear your mom got to fem you up, you know? It's time to wear underwear that's made to fit you and how you see yourself. Tomboy X has everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks and boy shorts, to soft bras and racerback bras. All in everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints, like octopus print, which is my current favorite. Regardless of where you fall on the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X offers amazing underwear that anybody can feel comfortable in. Go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, and check out their special bundles and pack pricing. Food Psych listeners also get an extra 15% off with the code foodpsych. Again, just use the code foodpsych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout for an extra 15% off. Ditch whatever you're wearing for a pair of Tomboy X underwear. Go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Dana Falsetti. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So, such a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. My relationship with food. Well, my mom mostly cooked, first of all. I mostly ate dinners at home. It was sometimes kind of turbulent, and it's almost hard to remember. And I, I always kind of wonder how much of my childhood memories I've just sort of blocked. Sometimes I I try to think back and sometimes it's kind of hard to remember. When I was about 10 or maybe just before I was 10, my parents got separated. And then a couple years later, they got divorced. But prior to that, pretty consistent sort of family dinners at home. And my mom always cooked. And I think I honestly had a pretty good, a pretty healthy relationship to food most of my young childhood. And then early on at some point, and I don't actually know exactly when because I didn't, I sort of self-diagnosed myself with an eating disorder many years later, but I think sometime around 10, 11, 12, around the time that my parents got divorced and my, I hit puberty very young and my body started changing, I developed a binge eating disorder. And that's when my relationship with food really started to shift. But up until that point, I would say that it was, you know, sort of, standard kid, standard kid, kid at home with family mode until I became secretive about my eating and and started to deal with body shame and just sort of trying to find my identity and how quickly that got tied up with food because of the size of my body, the way that I was experiencing, you know, my interactions with society on top of developing that eating disorder at some point as a way to cope Yeah, it's so interesting how diet culture and those interactions with society can start so young and can really poison kids' minds against themselves so that when puberty hits, whenever that is, or when, you know, things like eating to cope with difficult stuff come into play, it's like there's this automatic judgment of, you know, this is bad. I shouldn't be doing this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
That sounds really painful. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so interesting because I think I did it, I did it so unconsciously sort of for so many years. And it wasn't until I was able to self-diagnose that I could start to actually unpack where any of it came from and then start trying to shift my responses. And, but at the time it was extremely challenging and it just, it felt very isolating. You know, I mean, of course I would never eat in front of people or certainly not indulge in front of people. So my binge eating was very secretive and people didn't know that I was doing it. They just knew that I was getting bigger. And that was sort of the only gauge to the public eye. Meanwhile, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old me going through all this inner turmoil and not knowing how to ask for support and already being able to tell that I was feeling ostracized by society for my size. And then getting the same sort of narrative from my doctors that fat people are still used to now um, of the constant pressure for weight loss and and my family as well. I think with the best of intentions, of course, at the time, not with any malice, but certainly encouraging the same. So it just quickly became a complex for me. And food was very much my outlet, but was also my enemy at that time in my life. So that's, of course, a very vicious cycle to be in. And you feel so out of control. And at the same time, you're trying to gain it through the same way that you feel out of it. Right. And then there's all this pressure on you to control your eating and control your size that makes you sort of turn to food even more, which is a real thing. You know, that's like so many people experience that. And there's science on that, too, showing that demonizing people's size and telling them to lose weight and the, the whole weight stigma package actually ends up driving people towards greater comfort eating than they would otherwise have if they weren't dieting and restricting. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you were really getting it from all sides in terms of like people saying stuff to you about your body. Yeah, I think so. And I also, I went to a really small school, so I didn't have that many other kids around me. And I was the only girl in my class who hit puberty young. And so my body was the only, you know, by the time I was 12, I looked 18, 19 years old and was curvy and all of my peers looked like kids, you know? And so that was also just confusing and just definitely very isolating. So I think a lot of my childhood experience was just sort of that. And part of it was me falling into isolation because of, you know, all of these sort of external moving parts that were beyond my control and that I I couldn't really understand at the time. But then the other half of it was me continuing on that path myself. And of course, constantly having this front. And, you know, I think a lot of it ties to my family for sure. And my relationship with my mom and then, you know, my parents getting to divorced and all of that. And my whole life, I've sort of been the, the independent, the strong, always have that face on and everybody, you know, it's both beneficial, but also is then perceived, you know? And so because of that, but I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. And so I fell into this this habit of just not being able to ask, not being able to ask for help or for support, um, which is still something that I'm learning every day how to do. It's amazing how much and how long your patterns can travel with you. Oh, yeah. I can so relate to that. I was kind of a similar type of kid where I didn't, I had to grow up pretty quickly because of some childhood trauma and stuff that I 
heard talked about around me and stuff like that. So I, you know, really was holding a lot from a lot of people older than me that I probably shouldn't have been. And exactly. Yeah. You know, and then that does so carry with you. And I think, like you said, there's sort of a double edged element to it where like being a type of person like that, where you're just like, I've got this, I can be strong, I can do this. Like there's something valuable to that in terms of, you know, getting through hard times and also getting shit done in the world. And like, it's rewarded by society in certain ways. And it also can make you suffer and feel totally alone if you're not able to temper it with some asking for help, which I also have had a long journey to be able to do and still sometimes don't do enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think it's hard to find the balance in any of your personality traits. You know, I think we're we're drawn towards the extreme ends of the spectrum for all of them. Um, And I know that I certainly am. My whole life I've been such a sort of I'm 100% in or 100% out type of person. And so I'll be in, in the epitome of that mode where I'm go, 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 and I can do everything myself. And I feel like I'm, you know, in that motivated phase. But then on the other end of that, I'm also simultaneously not reaching out at all, which eventually will catch up with you. So it's certainly interesting how your character traits manifest themselves in your life. (laughs) Yep. And how life will tell you in certain contexts, like, hey, you need to do less of this. You need to actually Mm -hmm. get some balance in your life because you can't just do that forever. Yeah. So did that end up sort of manifesting itself to you at some point then and you were able to self-diagnose like what was the what was the path sort of out of that like for you Mm, yeah I mean it was really the start of my yoga practice when I was a sophomore in college was right around when I started practicing and it was on the tail end of a year and a half or so of me committing to what I thought would be <laughs> the the be all end all, you know, the the final. I, I was going to lose all this weight and be happy, right? The weight loss journey. Yeah, I'd been doing that my whole life, of course. <laughs> pounds here, pounds here, up and down, up and down, up and down, constant cycle, and then eventually reached this point where I was like, okay, this is going to be it, and so. I did that and I sort of arrived in this completely different body and felt exactly the same, of course. <laughs> and you know, we could all guess that answer for sure. And and then I sort of fell into my yoga practice kind of by mistake and it very quickly brought me back into my body for the first time after being so disassociated from it for so long. It started to bring me back and with that I started to tune into feeling for the first time in my life and actually pay attention a little bit to just how I was existing in the world and just, you know, diving into what it meant to be in function as me. And it was that point in my life that I realized that I had an eating disorder and and it happened because I was noticing. And of course, I'm sure everyone who listens has heard plenty about disordered eating and how wide of a spectrum that is on and how, you know, of course, the things that trigger that response don't ever go away. And so you're constantly learning how to navigate your responses. And what happened was yoga had become this new version of response in my life to help me navigate things that were challenging for me. And I found myself feeling triggered by something and my usual desire would be to eat. And I was feeling sort of a similar desire to practice because of what that was starting to bring me. And it was at that point in my life that I even recognized it all that I had this desire to eat in response to anything. And it was the first time that I brought any awareness to the fact that I was binging because my whole life I was doing it 
with no awareness at all, just sort of, you know, without any consciousness about what I was doing, just sort of doing the steps, you know, running through the steps. Right. It was just a coping mechanism that you reached for and it didn't feel like it was a problem or you didn't question it. Exactly. It just becomes so ingrained. It becomes your normal so quickly, especially when you're doing it because you feel shame. So then it's secretive and it just becomes ingrained so quickly, especially if it starts so young, you know, and I think, and it often does. And all of these things, you know, and, and in my work now, you know, of course I'm, I'm speaking with women and femmes who are much older than me and, you know, who are in their fifties and sixties and realizing how much these things from their young childhood have accumulated and are continuing on throughout their lives. And it's hard when it starts so young, because when you're young, you don't know, you know, you don't know how to navigate those things. You might not know how to ask for help. And there's a gap there, you know, there's a big gap between sort of being a kid, I think, but dealing with very adult things, the gap between that and what it is to sort of be adult and have more understanding or have the ability to reach out and have resources and all of that. And for me, it started so young that that gap was huge, you know? Yeah, I think that's the problem with sort of being forced to grow up too fast because kids' brains really aren't able to, you know, just the way that our brain development happens, the capacity to sort of reflect on what you're doing and make different choices or see what's going on, what kind of coping mechanism you're using that's not serving you. Like that really isn't there. That kind of capacity for self-reflection isn't there so young for people. Exactly. It takes a while for the brain to develop to that point. So. Right. And your identity is being formed and, and you don't know what that is yet. You know, you don't know who you are yet. It's not like you you know, you're three years old and you have a sense of self and so strong, you know? So, so of course, you know, you grow up and, you know, people tell you who you are and you're influenced by endless things. And it just makes sense to me that it's so easy to just sort of become versions of yourself that are not necessarily who you are, but my gosh, like what kids deal with and are up against is, you know, we need more resources for sure and more conversation. And, and I think more people just asking how they can be supportive. Yeah. And that's so borne out in your experience, it sounds like, because it sounds like people were responding to like the external, what they saw as problem, which, you know, yep. was actually just a symptom or a sort of offshoot of what was going on for you underneath, which was exactly you had all this emotional turmoil and you were binging and then being you know, stigmatized for it and stigmatized for your size, which just made the problem worse. And nobody yep. was like, what's what's up? Like, what do you need? You know, exactly. It was like, no, just lose weight, which is so yep. unfortunately what so many kids go through, you know, the, that external shaming and body policing rather than looking at what's actually happening at a deeper level. Not that all kids who are fat or who gain weight are like have a problem that's also should be said sure. right like it's like sometimes kids just are meant to be in larger bodies and that's cool too you know yeah are different <laughs> yeah but yeah but if it's something where it's sort of like an acute change very quickly right and it's it's funny because I think it did start that way you know I hit puberty when I was like 10 and my body changed and I my body changed in just a normal way and I was just bigger than other kids in my class and but it still set me apart. And I think that that was the start. It was exactly what you just said, that I was always sort of bigger and I couldn't reconcile that. And nobody else around me could seem to reconcile that either. So then all of a sudden, what really was just my version of, of normal became a problem. And then 
stayed a problem for most of my life. Right. And was just compounded by the the isolation you felt for having to deal with a so-called problem. Yep. Yeah. No, I think that's so important to highlight. And, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening have gone through this experience as well of like normal development and changes for their body or just always being in a larger body than everyone else and having to sort of deal with those comparisons. And if we lived in a non-weight stigmatizing world, if we lived outside of diet culture, it would just be like, oh, that's my body. You know, I think Mm -hmm. if we had a real body positivity in our society, it would be such a different experience and such a different conversation. But right. because of the society we live in, it's just always comes back to my body's bigger, therefore it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. I think all the time now that I'm sort of on a, a path away from all of this and it's not linear, that's for sure. And there's so much unpacking to do. But now that I am, you know, on a very different end of the spectrum than I was before, I wonder all the time. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine, I truly can't even imagine what it would be like to have not only have grown up, but continue to be able to exist where that wasn't the primary topic of conversation all the time or ever, (laughs) (laughs) or ever, it would be a completely different life. Totally. I know how much would have changed, how much would have been different about your experience if that had never been part of the equation. And it's, I think that's so sadly true for everyone. I mean, that's part of what I try to do in my work is to just highlight that there's a possibility of something else and that as a society we can move towards that and it's you know maybe it's just small incremental changes right now but if one parent listening is able to give that to their kid you know or give that to themselves give that you know reparent your young self with this lens of actually your body was always okay and actually there's nothing wrong with you like Mm. that is such a huge shift and I feel like that's you know in my experience it's been so empowering to look at what I went through with food and of course being always in a thin, you know, societally accepted thin body and yet still struggling with this stuff. It's just, you know, gives me this insight as to like how much it doesn't really matter what size you are. The stigma is absolutely worse in larger bodies for sure in terms of the outside Mm -hmm. felt stigma in the world and this is, you know, the systemic oppression, but that all of us have this internalized weight stigma that is so toxic and so problematic and shaming for all of us. And, and it's gotta go. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, diet culture is, is so insidious. It's absolutely wild to the point where absolutely everyone, I think, especially women and femmes, but everyone (laughs) dealing with just constant, you know, this constant like narrative going on in their heads about, Uh, about their bodies. Like it's wild. It's wild when you start to move beyond that, you realize how much sort of mind space you clear when you're not consumed with that all the time. It's like, it really is like a whole different life. (laughs) And it's like, I was so consumed with that my whole life that when I finally stepped back from it, I was like, oh my gosh, there are all these things that I haven't given my time to, or that I've been wanting to do, or that I, I, I love and care about that I just haven't even had the emotional or the mental space for because I've been so consumed with this constant need to change myself, to conform, and just this overriding shame that I just carried with me all the time. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about diet culture as the life thief. That's kind of my metaphor for like how it does that, how it steals so much from us, our time, our interests, our pleasure, our happiness, you know, all of these different things that we could be really 
investing in and experiencing in life. And it's just erased because of incessant thoughts about food and body or the behaviors and then the shame about the behaviors, the disordered behaviors. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's really takes us away from who we truly are. Yeah, I agree. What are some of the things that you've been able to sort of tap back into after you discovered what you were doing with food and started to heal your relationship with it? Yeah, I I mean, it's so wild because life is very different now than it was um, a few years ago. I really do sort of feel like I'm living in a completely different reality than I was before. And I am, <laughs> I suppose I am in, in most ways. I'd certainly eat intuitively now. I still struggle occasionally with binging, but not anything like I did before. And I also recognize that we all have outlets and we all have ways that we find to comfort ourselves. And I'm not aware of any human who doesn't have <laughs> some of those things. And I'm just beyond the, the point of needing to constantly shame myself if I want to eat a pint of ice cream <laughs> because I'm sad about something every so often when there are a million other things that people, you know, involve themselves in to cope. And food is pleasurable, just like many other things are pleasurable. And you know, it's just, I guess I've kind of recognized that life is hard. <laughs> life is hard and everyone is just trying to survive and everybody is just trying to do their best. And I just see no reason. And it's it's the reason that, you know, fat, not only fat phobia, but true fat hatred and, and just the discussion of the nonstop discussion of health and food and disordered eating and everything. I'm just like, everyone is just doing their best. And, and who's to say that, any one way that someone learns to cope is, you know, better or worse than all of the endless ways that people learn to cope or that it's not the very thing that's allowing them to move forward in their lives. You know, I was, I was just talking to someone about this and how are there other outlets? Are there other ways that you can find comfort that may not be as stressful or as hard to, to manage as something like an eating disorder? Sure. But what if you've been through a lot of trauma in your life? And that disordered eating is the thing that is allowing you to continue to live, perhaps more so than if you had no outlet and were suffering from this trauma. You know, it's just, it's all so relative and personal that I'm just over, like I'm just over the constant need to scrutinize myself. And so much of it has been about forgiveness. It's been, you know, about being able to forgive myself for things that I shouldn't need <laughs> to even feel like I need forgiveness for. But I, in my mind, I need to be able to settle those things so that I can continue to move forward. And, and it sometimes means a constant forgiveness. You know, if I feel shame, you know, if I have a moment where I do feel shame about a food choice, which is pretty rare these days, but like we said, diet culture is quite insidious and sometimes it creeps back in and I'm now in a place where I'm able to just soften a little bit and not be so hard with myself and just be as compassionate and understanding towards myself as I would hope that other people could be towards themselves and that I could also be towards others. Yeah. And so many of us are so much more compassionate with others than we are with ourselves, especially around issues like food choices and body size and things like that. So oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's wonderful because, I mean, it is impossible to avoid diet culture 
creeping up and popping into different things. And especially, I mean, I'm interested to talk with you more about your yoga practice in the yoga world because I know there's a lot of diet culture there. You know, oh, it goes it goes under this guise. It's hard. It's, it's hard. <laughs> oh, I bet. And it goes under this guise of wellness, which I I've know. taken to calling the wellness diet. It's like the sneaky, shape-shifting form of diet culture that says it's not really about weight. And so it doesn't seem like it's it fits in with, you know, the rest of diet culture, but actually it is. And actually it's very much built on the same basis of categorizing bodies as good and bad and foods as good and bad and all the rest. But it's yep. it just, you know, is so insidious that it goes under the radar. And so, you know, I'm curious to hear like when you started practicing yoga and as you got deeper into your practice and also your body acceptance journey, like how did you start noticing things coming up there or navigating those diet culture intrusions? into the yoga world? Yeah. I mean, it's truly like, it's just constant. <laughs> it's <laughs> constant that I have to set my boundaries and really know who I am in the midst of all of this. And I've said many times that it is not easy to be a fat yoga teacher, especially one who is sort of public and who travels and teaches. And I'm, you know, often in conversations with companies who are involved in, in yoga and wellness culture, AKA mostly diet culture and studios that perpetuate that message. And um, it's really, really challenging. And honestly, being able to just sort of maintain my personal practice as my sort of safe haven kind of helps me <laughs> a lot to, to stay through that. But for me, it's about being able to stay true to my message and, and know how important this work is. And I certainly know that it's not only for myself, but hearing others and seeing others be able to show up and be able to create these spaces. But it's certainly not easy. And I have times where I occasionally feel overwhelmed by it. I've had times over the last four or five years where I've felt like I can't be involved, like I need a completely different career path. I don't think I can have one more conversation about like pseudo wellness or, you know, whatever it is. But then I'm reminded again of how important this work is. So, I mean, my my best sort of self-advice has been setting boundaries. And it's been it's been also, again, not to come back again to the importance of compassion, but I've, I've found it to be one of the strongest allies in my life is to be able to have compassion for others. And when I see and hear other conversations going on that I know are fueled by diet culture, I'm able to just recognize that it's that insidious and it has that strong of a hold on others and that I can soften to that as well because I recognize that I used to be in that place myself. And so there's a time for me to engage and the way that I engage is my work. And there's a time for me to set a boundary and say, I see where you are on your path and this is not where I am on my path and I'm going to just keep going on mine. And it means that not everybody understands and certainly not everybody is ready to understand this this kind of conversation and this completely different approach that is opposite of what diet culture reinforces. But for those who are ready for it, it's available, you know. I think that's such a great piece of advice, piece of wisdom for anyone who's struggling with this. And I hear from so many clients and, you know, podcast listeners and course participants that setting boundaries or navigating conversations about diet culture and how to get out of those conversations that are problematic and difficult is kind of the number one question I get asked, actually. And I think this idea of having compassion and having just a deep recognition that, like, 
diet culture is pretty much everywhere. It's going to be, it's going to surface in all kinds of little ways in places you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't, you know, wish that it would be like with friends that you're really close with that you want to talk about anything else under the sun other than this and suddenly it pops up or you know in a class that has supposedly nothing to do with it but somehow the professor starts talking about like dieting as an example or whatever it is so just yeah like you said sort of recognizing that you have your own way of addressing it and then sometimes you don't need to address it in the moment but you just go back to yourself and what you know is true exactly and I think it's also like as you begin your path to healing away from diet culture, you start to see it more, you know, when it's, when you aren't seeing it, it's just an ingrained part of your life and it feels very normal. Then you start to pull yourself out of it and you get this more objective view of what's going on. And all of a sudden you'll, you see it everywhere you go. And so it can make it, it can certainly make it harder because it feels like you can't escape it. And you can't quite frankly, but that's why I think the setting boundaries and having compassion is so is so essential because otherwise it just makes you harder, you know, it just it it ends up backfiring to not be able to have compassion or set boundaries in, the, in that way, even though that might feel like the harder thing to do in the moment. Right. It's so uncomfortable to set boundaries when you're not used to doing it. And yeah. so much in our culture, I think that same the same thing that makes so many of us struggle with disordered eating, you know, is sort of a people pleasing, like a desire to do the right thing, a desire to make other people happy, a desire to fit in and to belong. And all of that stuff is so understandable. And I think that's the same sort of impulse that makes it so hard to set a boundary because it's like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make yeah. this person mad at me. I don't want to make it awkward and weird. But actually, it's going to be such a a gift to your relationship in the long run to set the boundary and to go through that period of discomfort for, mm -hmm. you know, however long it takes to, to mm -hmm. get to a place where you're not actively being sort of triggered all the time by this person's experience or talking about diet culture and stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's self-preservation, you know, you have to, you have to be able to take care of yourself. And that means taking care of your emotional and mental health just as much as anything else. And that certainly means setting boundaries. Absolutely. And setting boundaries, something that I always say too is like, it's oftentimes you have to reiterate the boundary or like reinforce the boundary when you've, after you've set it, it's like, oh my God, okay, that conversation was so hard, but I did it. I set the boundary. And then the next time you see the person, they're still talking about something else to do with diet culture <laughs> yeah. that they don't recognize. But I think mm -hmm. what you said about how people don't really see it and they don't recognize it, but when they're in it is very helpful in recognizing like, okay, other people are going to have a hard time. There's going to be a learning curve in understanding what I mean when I say that I don't want to engage in diet talk or I don't want to hear about weight loss or your body or whatever. And so just sort of educating people the best you can and doing your best to reinforce that boundary again and again is kind of part of the work of boundary setting. It's like not the fun part because it's the part that you're like, ah, yeah. oh, I already talked to you about this. Why are we doing this again? But, you know, it's also really important, I think, for for other people's understanding as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so that's, I think setting boundaries is like this whole thing that I've talked, mm -hmm. you know, and <laughs> it's so important. I feel like it's kind of everything in a lot of ways. Yep. How did you first, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and I was saying something about, they were telling me like they had a fear of success and, you know, they're starting to unpack it in therapy and stuff. This was a friend. And I was like, I really feel like I've sort of overcome that a lot in, in recent years and learning how to set boundaries was such an important part of that. And they were like, what do you mean? 
what does that mean setting boundaries? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh mm-hmm. my God, like that, yeah, that, you know, I went through a phase too where I didn't understand what that even meant. I didn't know mm-hmm. what the concept of setting boundaries was and how helpful it could be to me. So like, how did you sort of learn that that was even a thing? Yeah. How did I learn that that was a thing? Well, I think it maybe started happening naturally in small pieces as I kind of continued to practice and came back into my body and started seeing diet culture for what it was and that I didn't need to have a part in it. And I think I naturally started to to distance myself from that because I realized how much it was impacting my life. And then I think it just came from my own self-awareness, which has come largely from my yoga practice that has sort of opened my mind in so many ways and has just made me sort of a more objective and critical thinker. And with that sort of tied with my own self-awareness and a, and a deep understanding of, of not only who I am, but what it is that I need tied together with a sense of self-worth, which is maybe the really hard part, mm-hmm. <laughs> gives you the permission to set boundaries. But when you don't have that sense of self-worth, it's really hard to set boundaries because you don't feel worthy of setting them. And you're often still rooting you know, so much of your validation and things that are outside of yourself. And so setting boundaries might feel really terrifying. And if you're a people pleaser, I've been a people pleaser my whole life. Learning how to say no has been one of the hardest lessons that I'm still learning how to do and say no without having to justify or tell a white lie about why I can't do something or, you know, whatever it is. But being able to do that has has really sort of I mean, it's really changed my life to shift from needing to appease people all the time because I need to be validated by people all the time to recognizing my innate self-worth, feeling validated in that and in my ability and my sort of passion to just be exactly who I am and know that that is enough and that that is good enough and that that's what I want to do with my life. And that self-worth and self-respect is what allows me to set boundaries when it feels really hard. That's so important. So well said, because it is like the permission to care for yourself in that way and the respect and valuing of yourself in that way I think, is is what allows you to actually go through with it. Because, I mean, I definitely also am a recovering and probably always will be recovering people pleaser and went through so much of my life feeling like I was just angry, you know, I was angry at people, which I didn't know, I didn't know why, but I had this just low level rage, I think simmering all the time because I was getting my boundaries violated left and right, or I wasn't setting any boundaries, but I had sort of, you know, instinctive boundaries in my head that I knew I needed to not let people cross. And then I would let them cross them and then feel really upset because I wasn't able to communicate that that was a problem and that they shouldn't do that. And I would just let people continuously like walk over my boundaries and sort of you know, sought out people in my life or had people attracted to me who were, you know, particularly into that kind of dynamic. And so it was just like, it was just, I was just full of rage all the time, you know, and then finally learning how to communicate those needs and set the boundaries. I feel like I just have so much less anger and I'm so much more of a a happy and like open person walking around the world. I don't feel like I'm glaring at everybody I see, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I totally understand. And I think when you're a people pleaser, the expectation is tied to that so strongly that you're going to get treated the same in return, that you're going to be appeased by that. It's almost, you know, in the last year or so, I've recognized the difference between helping and supporting. And I see the tie between helping and people pleasing, whereas supporting doesn't necessarily give you anything back. But the desire to help, I think, is often more about the giver 
than it is about the receiver. And I think that that's often what people pleasing is. It's I'm going to do this for you so that I can feel some in some way, shape or form better about myself, whether that's me mentally, internally, or whether that's you returning the favor to me and me feeling like I did something for you or whatever it is. But when you can bring it home, you know, just sort of like bring the net in and realize how much of that you can do yourself, but it requires an immense amount of work and showing up for yourself. It's just, it's a game changer, but it's hard. It's hard work every day. You know, people ask me every day, well, how, right? Like how, how, how do you do this? And my answer is always, it's, it's work. It's work and it's small choices and decisions every single day that might seem insignificant in the moment, but that total to eventually a completely different life. Yeah, it adds up when you start showing up for yourself in little ways. And yeah. and you're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it consistently at first. And it's going to take a long time before. I mean, it's never going to be perfect, but it's going to take a long time before it's even consistent. Yeah. So I think the compassion piece. Exactly. When you're not perfect because it's not linear and you have those moments. Because how often, you know, we're so hard on ourselves. Like I remember years ago when I was sort of at the peak of my, my binge eating disorder and just feeling so, you know, I would binge and then that would send me down the trajectory of just being in this sort of negative thought cycle. Like I couldn't do anything right. And I would start shaming myself and shaming myself. But if you can just create a little space and softening and forgiveness, then you can realize that any consecutive moment of the day is a perfect moment to decide to make a different choice and to go down a different path. Even if at some point you get swung in the other direction again, the other path is always there for you, you know? And I think we're so hard on ourselves that you take one step down a path that you know you don't want to go down, but in your mind, you feel like you're stuck on that. When in reality, there are, there are endless paths, you know, there are endless choices and decisions that we can make. And that autonomy is, is available to us. Yeah, it's not like you have to castigate yourself for taking one, you know, step down the path and be like, well, I already did this. I blew it. So I'm going all the way, you know, which exactly. is such a diet culture move, you know, yep. Like yep. very ingrained in us. But yeah, you can be like, oh, that was not what I wanted to do. And OK, I'm going to turn this ship around or exactly. be like, I'm going down this path you know, whatever, God help me. And then also be be <laughs> yeah. soft with yourself after that, you know, exactly. be compassionate with yourself. Like, exactly. Yeah. The language that you're using and the ideas of self-compassion and all this stuff have been so healing and transformative for me in my own life and so many people that I know. And yoga was also a big part of my recovery journey. And I know a lot of people who don't like yoga, you know, who are like, I want the benefits. I want, I want what you're talking about, but how is yoga going to get me there? Or yoga is really boring or yoga is not possible for me in my body because of a disability or because of whatever, you know, like there's so many seeming barriers to sure. a yoga practice. So what would you say to someone who really doesn't like yoga or really isn't able to do yoga in the way that it's sort of typically shown to us as a way to incorporate some of those benefits still? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is I don't blame you for thinking <laughs> that it's not for you because that is certainly perpetuated from essentially all angles. You know, it's like you said at the very beginning, yoga culture in the States particularly, or in, you know, Western world in general is very ableist. It's very whitewashed. It's very body shaming. It's a whole long list of things that you would think someone listening to this conversation would want to avoid. And I completely understand that. But the thing that's a shame about it and why I try to offer and create these spaces and have these conversations is that, you know, what is available to anyone through yoga 
really is available to anyone. And it's this other reality. It's sort of this other state of being. It's a different way of seeing a different way of feeling. And I think that there are endless ways that you can come back into feeling in your body and that you can move forward mindfully. But something that I love about yoga and, and I think why I've stuck with it is I find it to be, if you can give to it and show up at least, really innately self-empowering because nobody can do it for you. Nobody can give it to you. There are sort of no shortcuts or tips and tricks. All you can do is continue to show up in practice. And in that, as we said before, you know, these tiny baby steps of this consecutive showing up, even if it's to sit in silence and breathe for three minutes in the morning, even if it's to just move your body for five minutes, whatever that might look like, that matters. And I think we also get bogged down by this, like, I have to do a full length practice and I have to be able to keep up with this, like, power vinyasa class or whatever it is. That's not what it is. You know, for me, my whole yoga practice has been about coming home to myself. And I can think of endless ways that that's possible. And it doesn't have to look like a power vinyasa class. It never has to look like a handstand. It doesn't have to look like a minute practice or or any of these things that we see and are bombarded by all the time. And the thing is, there are ways to adapt. There are ways to adapt the practice to, to truly make it accessible for everyone, regardless of how limited your mobility might be or, you know, whatever it is. There are ways. It certainly takes, unfortunately, some, some pretty hard digging to maybe find those resources for you because of how much diet culture has invaded the yoga world, but it hasn't invaded yoga itself as a practice and what is available to people in that. And I would love for everybody to know that that really is available to them. And it looks like endless different things. Yeah. I mean, yoga, the word just means yoke, right? It's it's yoking the mind and the body. That's the origin of the term. And I think that's such a beautiful way of describing it because it, it is, like you said, there's endless ways of doing that. You can figure out how to come into your body in small ways where it could just be sitting and breathing and noticing your breath. It could just be yeah. moving your body in a really gentle, not you know, doesn't look like anything sort of way and doesn't mm -hmm. certainly isn't, you know, directed at like calorie burning or whatever the diet culture stuff. Right. It's more directed at getting into your body and feeling into what it feels like to live in this body and not just living as sort of a disembodied head, which yeah. so many of us do in Western culture. Exactly. And I think it's also, you know, people get so I think we really get bogged down by the vanity of it all. You know, we're so sort of egocentric and we're so visual, you know, it's very, we're very sort of superficial and we're vain, you know, I mean, it's like flashy handstands all the time. And most people show up to yoga for the first time because they think the poses are cool, you know, and they want to learn how to do cool shit with their bodies. And that's cool. You know, that's cool and everything, but there's a whole lot more <laughs> going on than just that. And the sort of public image of yoga has been reduced to just that when there's a whole lot more going on. And, you know, even outside of the asana practice, you know, the first, the first two limbs are philosophical. They're based in sort of the groundwork for how to approach your practice and how to maybe move through your life in a way that is different or with more awareness than before. And this, these concepts of compassion and forgiveness and 
coming home to myself have come from those. You know, I see the ability, the space for mindfulness and even body awareness just through understanding some of those different approaches um, and not even approaching the asana practice uh, to start, you know? So there are just, there are a lot of different ways to find that, you know, to, to find that sense of coming home to yourself. Yeah, I think that's great. And and it's also sounds like what you're saying, too, is that you can really listen to your intuition for that. Like if there's something yeah. that doesn't feel right to you or that doesn't look like it's in the range of possibilities for your body because of whatever reason, you know, like you don't have to do it. It's not it doesn't have to look like anybody else's practice. It doesn't you won't have to even do what the teacher is saying in a yoga class. Exactly. You could literally be in child's pose the whole time or be in a wheelchair or be wherever, you know, like yeah. do your own thing and it's OK. Exactly. And it's the foundation of the whole practice. The whole foundation of the practice is ahimsa, which is nonviolence. And it's meant to be nonviolence towards yourself to start, you know? And so that means constantly serving you and what you need. And that's what you're going to yoga for, you know? And so that's the first thing I tell my students when they come to my workshops. I'm like, look, your first option and how to approach this is to not do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't have to do any one pose. You don't have to do what I'm saying. You have to, you know, we need to learn how to listen to us. It's exactly what you said. We need to learn how to tune in to intuition. You know, our bodies are intelligent and they they talk to us, but often we're we're not listening and we don't want to. Yeah, because what they're saying is so contrary to what we've been taught we should do. Exactly. What diet culture wants us to do. And so yeah, we push ourselves past what our bodies are telling us. Yep. The concept of ahimsa, I think, is so interesting. And I've spoken with other yoga teachers on the podcast before about this because I think one way that diet culture is unfortunately showing up in yoga these days is to sort of twist the concept of ahimsa into, well, you have to eat a certain way in order to be kind to yourself because ahimsa. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't think that's what they mean, you know? So I'd love to hear your sort of responses to that. Yeah, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. They're like, are you vegan? Are you vegan? And I'm like, no, I'm not vegan. <laughs> and I, th- first of all, I think like, look, we, we've adapted every other part of the practice <laughs> to fit sort of the Western mold. So I, I don't know why we're nitpicking. Of course we are though, about the food, <laughs> the food <laughs> asked the, the tiny, the one tiny thing about food in the whole right. practice, of course, is like a hot topic of conversation over here. So diet culture. It's like- so diet culture. It's so funny to me when I get asked that question. But no, I mean, for me, and I get it. I get the nonviolence aspect of that. But people do tend to interpret Ahimsa either as, you know, no war, you know, sort of no external violence, which there's something to be said for and and, and then doing no harm, which is where the vegan aspect comes from. But, you know, for me and for my students and what I'm trying to do here again is come home to myself, take care of myself, be able to see myself as human. Being vegan doesn't fit into that for me, or at least not right now and maybe never, and be able to help create that space for other people. First of all, I I don't even call myself a yogi, and I don't feel that that's a term that I need in my life or that I need to attach to, but you certainly don't need to be vegan to practice yoga. You don't need to be vegan to find body awareness or to be able to move your body, and just the constant nitpicking about food, (laughs) again, and about bodies in that conversation, or that you're not a real you know, yoga person, if you're not doing any of this, it's just bull. It's honestly bull because you could go through and find, I could find 10,000 different things that not a single yoga person in the States is doing that it says in the scripture (laughs) doesn't make them a yogi. (laughs) So take it for what it is. I mean, honestly. 
such a great point. There's so many adaptations that have been made to it to fit Western culture. And part of the reason yoga is such a thing these days, I think, is because of this like visual emphasis that's being placed on it that helps it sell. You know, it's like cool looking yoga pants and clothes and, you know, capitalism can attach to it and and sell it and make it look pretty and, you know, pretty per beauty standards that are in in effect at this point in time. Right. But Yeah, so it's been so twisted in so many ways. But we picked that one thing. (laughs) We picked that one thing to like berate people on, of course. Yeah, it's quite funny. (laughs) And I want to say, because I've had some letters before from people who are vegan for ethical reasons, who are like super mad about some things that I've said on the podcast about like how people, you know, veganism can be really harmful to some people. And I will say, like, if people are vegan for ethical reasons and they're taking care of themselves and it's truly coming from a place of self-compassion and doing no harm to themselves and trying to do no harm to animals, I think that's super cool. But I am also in the space of my recovery where it's been a very long time since I engaged in any disordered eating behaviors, but I also know that I have to protect my practice. I have to protect my recovery. And I think that's a really essential part of how I'm able to show up in the world and like be the happy person that I am today. So for me, I don't think veganism is really ever in the cards because I think it would, it challenges too much of the self-compassion that I've really worked to build. And I think that is the case for a lot of people who are recovering from eating disorders and disordered eating. And, you know, there are those rare people that I've worked with in my coaching programs who are vegan for ethical reasons and have been for a really long time. And it's like super disconnected from any origins of their disordered eating. And I think that's a very different story than people who the decision to be vegan is really tied up in diet culture or tied up in wellness culture. Like that's a really harmful experience of veganism that, you know, I would not endorse. Of course, because it's just a perpetuation of all of the same thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's the same way that, you know, people will go to heal from one version of disordered eating only to find, you know, only to fall into a different version of diet culture. You know, it's very much the same thing. Right. I healed my eating disorder by being keto or whatever it is. Exactly. So, you know, I see that in it as well. And it's also like, look, I don't know how to live. It's cap- We got capitalism going on over here. I'm not really sure how to live a lifestyle that is completely nonviolent. I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware of anybody unless I'm going to be a monk and go live like in the mountains by myself uh, for five years and then reemerge. Like, you know what I mean? I mean, there's no way for me to live a completely nonviolent life. Look at what you buy. Do you right. know what I mean? So it's just so funny again, like, and I just say that to give context to the fact that this recurring conversation about veganism and its association with yoga is so clearly and loudly diet culture because there are um, endless things that we could be nitpicking on. Right. There's so many ways in which our lifestyle does harm. And, and I, I, you know, in my sort of pre-eating disorder days, but still like racked with anxiety and, you know, a lot of mental health challenges days, I got really interested in environmentalism and, you know, that was great. And like doing, making an effort to reduce my ecological footprint, I think is totally awesome. But the way that I took it in that frame of mind was like to make myself, you know, totally obsessed with doing everything perfectly and buying only the most ethically sourced, local, sustainable, et cetera, of everything and switching over all of, you know, it was just, it it took over my life. Right. And I think at that point, it's like, you got to really think about the harm that you're doing to yourself by restricting your life that much is 
probably outweighing the benefit that you're doing to the planet. And actually, you are a member of the planet that you need to take care of. And right. so now I, I definitely still try to make choices in line with, you know, environmental best practices and do a few things in different areas of life that feel doable and sustainable and easy. But, you know, that doesn't include so much with food anymore unless it's an easy sort of choice that I can make because that just really led me down a, a terrible rabbit hole. Absolutely. And it's also the epitome of privilege. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, we don't have, we don't have all day, but like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, but it's also just the epitome of privilege. Like I'm out here trying to share what's possible in the space of yoga with some of the most marginalized communities. I am not, veganism is like the last thing that I, that I have space to have a conversation about in these spaces. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to daunt someone who already feels ostracized by what diet culture is in the yoga world by bringing in the conversation of veganism in terms of non-harming. And you know what I mean? Right. It's just, it's Ugh. just not. <laughs> no, totally. And that's such a, such an important point about all of this is that it's such a privileged conversation to have about veganism or doing wellness in a particular way, having chia seed puddings and green juices all the time and whatever and wearing the particular yoga clothes like for some people that is not at all within the cards and yoga could actually really benefit so many folks who don't fit that picture of what it's supposed to look like absolutely and i'm curious because i mean you're starting something that i think or you've launched something that is so amazing and so perfect for countering that privilege in the yoga world, which is this new pay what you can yoga studio online, which I'm so amazed by because I think that's it's a really rare thing to have someone both who is so visible already in the yoga space or in the online space in general, make such a huge effort towards economic justice. And then also just such a hard like, you know, as a business person, I'm like, that's a tough undertaking, like curious about how you went about it and how you made that choice. Yeah. And you know, it was sort of a total experiment. I don't know if you know about the lawsuits that I was involved in. (gasps) No. Oh yeah. So that's a whole other story. So I was involved in two lawsuits with two yoga companies, (laughs) two yoga companies that I, I got sued by and they went on for about five or six months. They actually did end up going public. It turned into this whole conversation about this topic, quite frankly. Oh my God, I totally missed it. <laughs> and if, yeah, if you do a little Google, you'll see it, but it's done now. It's since done. But throughout the months of the lawsuit, it really sent me into this like the lawsuits got sparked because I was angry. And I was, a- I'm angry about everything <laughs> that we're talking about here. And that anger is warranted. But a lot of that also came from me being complicit in things that I want to see more change in. And so through the scope of these lawsuits, I started to just channel the energy that was feeling really turbulent through all of that into really doing what I could, doing even more to really be that change that I want to see more of and and recognizing that I have so much power and privilege to do that. I really do in so many different ways. And so because of that, I I just, I came up with this, you know, first of all, I wanted to do everything myself moving forward. I wanted to be able to own my own content and really have control over what I was putting out, be very sure that diet culture and language and were not 
creeping into the space at all and that it really could be safe for people who are trying to get away from that and also to fill some of the gaps in accessibility that I've seen after working in the corporate yoga world for a few years. And those are endless. There are a long list of of points of accessibility, but some big ones that I've noted are, of course, the actual content of the asana class. So the approach, you know, so the the website has chair yoga classes and we have risk-free, you know, standing only classes and yoga for migraine and, you know, chronic pain and just things that I'm, I don't see a whole lot of. And there are, there are people doing it for sure. But I recognized that with the voice and the privilege that I have for me to be able to put this out into the world just feels, it feels amazing and supportive of those communities. So it's, it's the content itself. The other thing that I I hear and I saw myself is pricing and accessibility. Yoga is freaking expensive. Yeah. Really expensive. And we've seen the subscription model kind of come up on the rise, but you know, 20, not most, a lot of people can't afford 20, $30 a month on repeat getting pulled out of their accounts, you know? And so I just really kind of believed and hoped, and it has turned out to be amazing. And I'm so grateful for that, but I, I wanted to sort of put humanity, a little bit of humanity back into it and say, look, consider this a way to create community, right? If you can pay more, you pay more so that someone who wouldn't be able to pay $30 a month can pay five, you know, or can pay 10 and can name their price. And the thing I love about the name your price is it also gives autonomy back to the person. Like it's been so fun for me to see people tagging me on their stories on their Excel spreadsheets, doing their month budgeting and figuring out just exactly how much they could, that they can afford to pay, you know, $8 a month for the subscription and then signing up for it with that. I love that because again, that's innately self-empowering name your own price. I just think that's so cool. And then the last point of inaccessibility was for the deaf and hard of hearing communities. And then especially if you, if you need online content and especially if you need accessible online content in that, in the physical way, at least, And I wanted to be able to fill that gap as well. So all of the video content is captioned. So these were just all my different ways of trying to fill some of those gaps. And I just, it was an experiment and I just kind of put it out into the universe and the feedback has been amazing. And I'm just, I'm thrilled that it really does feel supportive of people who have felt left out and who haven't been able to afford it and haven't been able to find teachers that know how to teach to them. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I really am so inspired by what you've done. And I feel like it's a gift to the world that you're doing this. Yeah. And that's my hope. And it's also, you know, I'm I'm not going to share any numbers or anything like that. <laughs> but I, you know, I've sort of done the numbers on the back end. And it's like, look, say I had charged $30 a month for the subscription, I could have the same amount of money. But a quarter of the people joining, Mm. you know what I mean? But Mm. now four times the number of people are able to practice because it levels itself out when people can pay what they can, you know? So it's just, I love that. That's super cool. That's very inspiring. And also I know you've, you've had some sponsorship from a really cool company, right? So that probably also helped to give you some of the seed money. Cause I've, I've seen like the videos you're doing are super high quality, beautiful, like wonderfully shot. Thank you. Yeah. And captioning is expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's definitely the, the website was not inexpensive to launch and it's not inexpensive to maintain. And I have put all my resources into the launch and into maintaining that super fit that the company that I launched with definitely helped me in getting it up and, and sort of getting it started. And I'm just excited to see where it goes, you know, and I, and I also recognize that because of the amount of privilege that I have, that 
I was able to do this experiment. And because of that, why not be able to offer that? And I think that it's also set a standard, or I hope that it starts to set a little bit of a standard. Like, look, I just turned 25 years old. I'm one person. If I can release a pay what you can platform where all of the videos are captioned, then every freaking company (laughs) charging $30 a month for their subscriptions can find a way to make pricing more accessible, can caption all of their content, can have more diverse teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really well said. Like you've figured it out and you're one person with, you know, some privilege for sure, but also not necessarily more than these big companies that are doing the same thing. So exactly. Yeah, that's so awesome. Thank you. Tell us more about where people can find it and learn more about your work. Yeah, so everything is um, pretty much online. So DanaFalsetti.com is my website. And from there, you can sign up for, it's a subscription, so it's a monthly membership, but you can name your price and you can cancel any time. And then you get unlimited access to all the classes and a new class goes up every other week. So it's pretty consistent. On there, you can also find all of my workshops. So I travel and teach accessible yoga workshops all over the world. And I have retreats as well occasionally. And then my social media is Nola Trees on Instagram and Dana Falsetti on Facebook. And I think that's everything. And you can sign up for the email list on my website as well in case there's any speaking engagements or sort of anything like that. Oh, and the podcast. I have a podcast. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I, I always forget. I'm like on someone else's pod. And I'm like, wait, I have a pod. <laughs> I have a pod now too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called Deep Dive. It's on iTunes and Google Play and my website as well. And it's just sort of my free space to rant and ramble about anything that's kind of on my mind. And it's a combination of me solo kind of unpacking my own thoughts and occasional interviews with different people. So I've been really enjoying that new way to to get some messages out there as well. That's awesome. Deep dive, it's called. Yeah. That's wonderful. We'll put a link to that in the show notes too so people can find it and definitely go subscribe wherever you're listening to this. If you've got a podcatcher that you're hearing this on, just put it in. Oh, so great talking to you, Dana. I love yeah, you what you're too. doing in the world and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Dana Falsetti for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please share it with at least one friend who you know needs to hear the anti-diet message. I'd love to have you share on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere with all the people you know, but even if you just share it with one person, it will go such a long way to helping change the world. You can share on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, and you can either grab their phone and show them how to subscribe, or you can go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the places where you can subscribe. You can also leave us a nice rating and review on your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and get the word out about the podcast and just make my day a little brighter as well. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 161. That's christyharrison.com slash 161. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, our community manager and content development associate, Ashley Saruya, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into making this show every week. 
Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house?